The following message is copyrighted by Westminster Theological Seminary. Duplication, distribution, or other use of all or any part of this message is not permitted without prior written consent. Please direct your inquiries to communications at wts.edu. For all other information, please visit the main website at www.wts.edu. I'm reminded of that story at the Irish wake when uh, all these wonderful things are being said about the deceased. And uh, eventually the, uh, the mother, the widow, says to her son, Son, would you go and have a look in that coffin? Because I don't know who they're talking about. (laughs) I used to think that uh, 30 was old. Now it seems rather young. So does 40. And you know, 50 doesn't sound too bad either. Because middle age brings a totally new perspective on life, on maturity, and a whole new appreciation of life and vitality and health. I remember as a young person listening to my parents complain about stiff joints, about poor eyesight, and all the other ailments that they were suffering as they grew older. But more than anything else, they complained about heartburn. Do you know what I'm talking about? Am I culturally relevant here? Maybe you've got a dynamic equivalent that you use. Indigestion. And there's a whole list of foods that they uh, thought caused heartburn. High up on the list, there were onions, closely followed by cheese, and then a whole variety of spices and even chocolate. And so far, as I have grown older, I have to say and rejoice that I haven't suffered from heartburn with any frequency. But I reckon it's one of those conditions that's about to hit me any day now. And like my parents, I too will probably complain that it's the food. Nothing to do with me. Nothing to do with my physical condition. Nothing to do with my maturing years. It's something I've eaten. And you all know what heartburn is. Maybe you've had a bite. The stomach produces too much acid. It creates this burning sensation in the middle of your chest and causes all kind of discomfort and even pain. Something to be avoided. Today, as the president has already indicated, I want to talk to you about another kind of heartburn. But not a condition that is to be avoided. Rather, it's one that is to be nurtured and developed, especially amongst those who desire to serve Christ and his cause and his kingdom. And like its physical counterpart, it's a condition that comes with maturity. Mentioned very specifically in the passage which David read for us a moment ago, the story of two disciples, possibly a couple, who had this wonderful encounter and conversation with Jesus on the evening of the first Easter day. Luke says, And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, 
Jesus explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. And they asked each other, were not our hearts burning within us while he talked with us on the road and opened the scriptures to us? The disciples experienced spiritual heartburn as Christ opened and explained the scriptures to them. Their burning hearts resulted from the understood and the applied word of God. And friends, if you and I are going to develop this heartburn, then we need to know what causes the condition. And the key element in fostering spiritual heartburn is the Bible. God uses his word to form us into the likeness of Jesus Christ and to create this burning sensation in our hearts. Listen to what Peter had to say. His divine power has given us everything we need for life and godliness through our knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and goodness. Through these, he has given us his great and precious promises so that through them you may participate in the divine nature and escape the corruption that is in the world caused by evil desires. We don't need to seek any special experiences. We don't need to uncover any strange hidden secrets in order to develop heartburn. Peter says that God's divine power has given us everything we need for life and godliness. And that everything comes to us through the instrument of God's word. It is through his very great and precious promises revealed in the word that we participate in the divine nature and escape the corruption in the world. God has designed it so that we experience spiritual transformation and avoid sensual malformation through his word. The word is God's primary means of transforming us into the likeness of Christ. Part of your reason for being here at Westminster is so that you might become better skilled in handling that word. But before you can apply the balm of the scriptures to the wounds of sinners, you need to know the fiery word of God burning and warming your own heart. The first application of all that you will learn here from God's word must be to your own heart and to your own life. Professor Murray put it very eloquently. We must betake ourselves anew day by day with humble and submissive minds to the law and to the testimony, so that our minds may be illumined, replenished, refreshed, renewed, and reinvigorated by the pure light that shines from the pages of God's inerrant word. Heartburn is ignited by the fire of God's word. And here at Westminster, we take the Bible seriously. We use all kinds of words to describe our commitment to the authority of Scripture. We speak of the sufficiency of the Scriptures. 
We talk about the inerrancy of the Scriptures. We talk about the perspicacity of Scripture. We speak about the inspiration of the Scriptures. And those are all ways of unpacking the truth that the Bible is the very Word of God which tells us everything we need to know about God and about His will for our lives. It is the means whereby our hearts are renewed and energized with a love for Christ and with a desire to serve him. And during this academic year, all of us want to experience that heartwarming effect produced as the word of God is understood and applied to our lives. But you know that the burning hearts of the disciples on the Emmaus Road were simply a response to the explanation which Jesus gave of all that was said in the scriptures concerning himself. In other words, it's not unreasonable to assume that these two believers had to expend a bit of mental energy in order to understand and respond to the scriptures. And what's encouraging for us is that Jesus appealed to their ability to do that. If they had been unwilling to use their heads, they might have said, now, listen, Lord, hold on here. This is just a bit too much for us. You're taking us through this too quickly. You're using much too much scripture. You're going too deeply into the Bible for us. Could you not just give us a few sound bites? What about a quick summary of all this stuff, Lord? Do we really need to know all this detail? Christ clearly believed that the disciples were capable of grasping his explanation. They had the power of mind and of intellect to understand and to digest what he explained to them. And it was only after a time of reflection and thought on what had happened that they realized how wonderful it had all been. One could argue that Jesus may consider us to be even more capable of understanding the scriptures than these two confused souls on the road to Emmaus. And the evidence for that is simply that he has given us even more of the scriptures to study and to understand. We have the New Testament as well as the Older Testament. We have the promise of the Holy Spirit to help us in the task. But the bottom line <clears throat> is that Jesus will not do for us what he has deemed us capable of doing for ourselves. The friends of Lazarus stood around the tomb, unable to call Lazarus back to life. Only Jesus could do that. But once Lazarus was raised, it was their responsibility to unwind the burial wrappings so that Lazarus could be free. And in this heartwarming encounter with the scriptures, you and I are actively involved in reading and hearing and studying and pondering the scriptures. Yes, Jesus is with us in that activity. Yes, he has sent his Holy Spirit to teach us and to convict us and to guide us. And he fully invests his ongoing presence with us so that we may know the things freely given to us by God. But the heartburn of an explained and applied scripture will not come about apart from our active involvement. And in the year before you, you will be called upon to work hard. There will be days and there will be nights when you will be required to dig deep in terms of your energy and your endurance. Let me tell you, at times you're going to feel overwhelmed and under pressure. You may even be tempted to give up and to plump for an easier option. Because a Westminster education requires commitment. 
It requires dedication. It requires effort. But that is all necessary if the Word of God is going to have this deep and transforming influence on our lives. And as you apply yourself to the study of the Word of God, and with the assurance of the presence of the Spirit of God, you can expect that your heart will begin to burn with a renewed love for God and a new enthusiasm for the work of His kingdom. Friends, what we are engaged in here is not purely or solely an intellectual activity. This is life-transforming. Some of us haven't been the same again since we set foot in Westminster. This is heartwarming because the fiery flames of God's word renew us. They refine us. They reform us. and They refresh us. Let me try to unpack it in, in three particular practical ways. Ways in which the blow torch of God's word will ignite and warm our hearts. Firstly, expect your heart to burn as you come to see this world and this life in a more God-centered way. What you will discover is that the word of God directly confronts and contradicts the world and life view which many of us have adopted. And it replaces that world and life view with something much better and indeed something more accurate. Many of us who have been involved in ministry for some years now began our theological education, we have to admit, with a pretty human-centered view of life and the world. We had put ourselves at the center of the universe. Every decision was made in terms of what best contributed to our own personal goals. Life was all about finding personal meaning and purpose and fulfillment. And so at the smorgasbord of life, we attempted to fill our plates with the best combination of dishes in order that we might be happy, that we might be fulfilled, and that we might be satisfied. And I have to confess that when I first enrolled at Westminster over 20 years ago, I was thinking primarily of what a Westminster education would do for me personally, even as a Christian. I was engaged in that quest for personal fulfillment and personal satisfaction. But that world and life view was challenged by what I learned here. I came to see that my life was not an isolated little bubble floating out in space. It was part of a great cosmic plan that God had been working out in history since the dawn of time, yes, even since eternity passed. And what really made the hearts of the disciples burn as they listened to Jesus speak to them was the fact that they came to see and understand more clearly what God had been doing in history. Their hearts burned as they began to see how their recent experience in Jerusalem and the events concerning the life of Jesus had been part of a much broader and grander accomplishment of the plan of redemption. Expect your heart to burn as you come to see that the focus of both the Old and New Testaments is not on the plans which we have for our individual lives, but it's on the fulfillment of God's great plan. His plan to establish his kingdom, to bless the peoples of this world as they respond positively in faith and obedience. And how the object of that faith has been clarified progressively in Scripture as Jesus Christ, the crucified, the risen, and the ascended Messiah. 
And you will begin to see then that personal fulfillment is really a byproduct of fulfilling our role within the body of Christ, the church. Jesus said that we will find our life. We will find our meaning. We will find our purpose only when we lose our life in meaningful and purposeful service for him among his people. So this whole issue of personal fulfillment is given an historical and a God-centered orientation as we find our place within the work of God's kingdom, his plan and his purpose. If I can change the metaphor for a moment, your heart will burn as you change the prescription for the lenses in your spectacles. You change to glasses that have God-serving lenses rather than self-serving lenses. And that will give you a whole new perspective and a whole new outlook. You'll begin to see your life in a totally new light. And you'll understand more clearly what God is doing in this world. The disciples on the way to Emmaus saw the sweep of God's redemptive purposes. That's what Jesus did when he opened the scriptures. And their hearts burned. The same for us. Secondly, expect your heart to be warmed and to burn as your life is purified and refined by God's word. Part of the reason for the spiritual heartburn of these two disciples was due to the realization that they just hadn't grasped what was going on. Their eyes were blind to the truth. They had lived through these marvelous events of the wonderful day when Jesus rose from the dead, but they just didn't understand what was happening. Jesus says that they were foolish. They were slow of heart to believe. And when the penny dropped with them, they could have kicked themselves. Why did we not understand? Why did we not believe? And their hearts burned partly with shame and with remorse and with conviction. When you and I are exposed to the word of God, it has the same effect. The word of God burns through the sinful defenses that we erect in order to make ourselves appear powerful. We think that we know it all. We think that we have it all together when all the time there are huge gaps in our knowledge, enormous areas of disobedience in our lives, and sometimes in spite of the clarity of God's revelation, we simply just don't get it. The Bible reveals to us, you see, the core of our being. It purifies what is often deep inside. In other words, the Bible has this unbelievable penetrating and cleansing power in the lives of those who read it and study it. And don't think that you can come into close contact with the word of God and not be forced to admit that there are sinful practices and sinful attitudes in your heart that are in need of repentance and in need of reformation. The best known picture which the Bible uses to illustrate this is found in Hebrews 4. The word of God, says the writer, is living and active. Sharper than a double-edged sword, it penetrates even to the dividing soul and spirit joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and the attitudes of the heart. Nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight. Everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of him before whom we must give account. 
And the context of those words is a passage which calls for faithfulness, such as Jesus expressed. But it warns about unfaithfulness, which Israel showed during her wilderness wanderings. And it's an exhortation not to fall into unbelief, because God will not miss seeing and judging everyone's choices to believe or to disbelieve. And it tells us that God's means of confrontation, his means of evaluation, is his word. It is so penetrating that every element of our being, the immaterial soul and spirit, as well as the material joints and marrow, is included. It judges the thoughts and the attitudes of the heart. God's not going to leave his evaluation of our lives until the very end. Right now, he offers us some compelling feedback on how we are progressing. We can know today what pleases him and what displeases him. A skilled surgeon applies the sharp scalpel so that the lethal tumor may be removed and that the patient has the prospect of a healthy future. And the wounds which God's word inflicts are faithful wounds. They cut away the malignant cancer of sin and enable us to grow strong in Christ. Friends, expect that your heart will ache and bleed as the unbelief and the disobedience of your life is exposed by the word of God. But when those wounds inflicted by the word are met with the balm and with the cordial of divine grace, your heart will warm and burn again. This is spiritual woundedness that leads to joy because the word that hurts and wounds is also the word that heals and renews. What does the psalmist say? The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The statutes of the Lord are trustworthy, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, giving joy to the heart. The commands of the Lord are radiant, giving light to the eyes. And when the word of God penetrates and evaluates and purifies our innermost thoughts and motives, then our earnest response is that we would please him in everything. And like the psalmist, we pray, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Finally, expect your heart to burn as you come to see Jesus Christ as the focus and the fulfillment of everything that God is doing. And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. Spiritual heartburn is caused by a new and an expanded appreciation of Christ. Whilst 
These disciples knew the scriptures. I think they just hadn't seen Christ there as clearly as they ought to have seen him. And having had the message and the theme of the scriptures explained to them, then their hearts began to burn. They began to see that Christ was the substance of every Old Testament sacrifice. Christ was the true deliverer, the king of whom all judges and deliverers in Jewish history were but types. He was the coming prophet, greater even than Moses. He was the seed of the woman who was set to bruise the serpent's head. He was the true Abraham in whom all nations were to be blessed. He was the true Shiloh to whom all the people were to be gathered. He was the true scapegoat the true brazen serpent, the true lamb, the true high priest of whom every descendant of Aaron was but a figure and a shadow. Christ was the sum, the goal, the fulfillment of the whole book. In the past, God spoke to our forefathers through the prophets at many times and in various ways. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his This seminary is committed and devoted to the service of the majestic Lord and Saviour who is presented to us in the scriptures of the Old and New Testaments. If your work here does not lead you to see Christ more clearly and to love him more dearly, then we will have failed. It's not the Christ of our own imagination. It's not some mystic Christ whom we discover in the hidden depths of our own souls. But it is the Christ of Scripture to whom we come and before whom we bow and worship. Lord, to whom shall we go? You alone. You alone have the words of eternal life. I'm convinced, friends, and that's the reason why I'm here. I'm convinced that this institution, as in no other institution, you will have explained to you the perfections and the glories and the wonders of Christ as he is revealed to us in the scriptures. It will be your privilege to sit at this sumptuous feast. But before inviting others to see the glories and the perfections of Christ, we ourselves need to see him more clearly. Before we can ever invite others to come and sit and feast on him who is the bread of life, we need to have satisfied our own appetite. Before inviting others to partake, we need to partake ourselves. Our hearts need to burn with love and devotion to Christ before we can minister and speak of him to others so that in turn their hearts also burn. When A.A. Hodge was inaugurated as Associate Professor of Didactic Theology at Princeton in 1877, William Paxton described Princeton as a place where educated young men are imbued with the doctrine of the cross and with this truth as a burning power in their hearts, they go out into the world to kindle and to fire the hearts of others. 
Westminster seeks to continue that work of igniting and of kindling the same burning power of the cross in your heart so that you may go out from here to kindle the fire in the hearts of others. And Paxton had a particular word of encouragement for Archie Hodge as he began his work at Princeton. I think it's an appropriate word of encouragement for those of us whose task it is to teach. Your work is not done, he reminded Hodge. When you have demonstrated a truth or deposited an intellectual dogma in the memory of a student, no, no, he added, your responsibility continues until you have sent that truth as a lighted torch into his soul to kindle there its light and to warm his whole being as with fire. Give them theology. Give them orthodoxy. Give them exposition, proof, demonstration. Give them learning, but give it to them warm. I submit to you, brothers and sisters, that we shall not achieve our goals this session until we have experienced this same spiritual heartburn. May the scriptures be open to us. May Christ be pleased to reveal himself to us in such a way that the experience of these early disciples may be reproduced in our lives. Were not our hearts burning within us while he talked with us on the road and opened the scriptures to us, may we all suffer from a severe bite of spiritual heartburn. Amen.